We're so glad that you've tuned in to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Kendall Kearns and I'm the student worship leader. We're now in the fifth week of our current series, Masterclass. The fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark shows Jesus restoring lives in amazing ways. Jesus displayed his power to cast out demons, heal the sick, and even revive the dead. Let's dive into scripture to experience these awesome moments, which reveal the power and glory of Jesus. And now here's this week's sermon. Good morning and welcome. I'm really glad that you're here. My name is Nick Allen and I get the privilege and the awesome opportunity to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. And we're in the the middle of a series that's going to take us all the way through the summer called Masterclass on the Book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning and you want to go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 5 or grab your mobile device and open up whatever app you use to read the Bible. That's where we're going to be today in Mark chapter 5. And we're literally going to go through the entire chapter together. But I want to kind of make a a note this morning of some words that we just sang. Like we literally just sang out loud in this place, um, you were a provider then, you're a provider now. Like you you were a healer then, God, we need you to heal us right now. Like there's this moment where we get to come into this place and connect with the ancient God of the Bible and know that he was alive then, he's alive now. He was active then in this narrative, he is active now. And we get the joy of opening up that word and and understanding better today by the power of the Holy Spirit, not certainly by the power of anything that's happening in this room, of why it matters and what it means for us. Um, Let me set a little timeline for you just in my own life. My wife, Susan and I graduated college um, with our undergrad degrees back in the 1900s. So this is how long you know a stretch of time that this has been for us. Um, So I'll say I have a nightmare, like a recurring dream that started way back then in undergrad that has carried me through even to this day. Like it's a dream that I continue to have. I have this fear and wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats trying to check the date on my calendar to make sure that I'm not an undergrad again because I have this feeling that there was a deadline to drop a class and I thought in my head that I had dropped the class only to find out that the entire semester had gone by and I never attended it once. And now all of a sudden, because I didn't apparently drop it by the deadline, I'm now responsible for all of the content that was taught. And the only way to avoid getting an F in that class is to show up for the exam and literally ace every single part of it. And I promise when I wake up, I look at the date on my calendar and I look at Susan next to me and I'm thinking, okay, it's not real. It's just a dream. It's not real. It's just a dream. I have literally told you a little bit about my psychology in this moment. And that's okay. Like you can, you can understand. But there's this whole word that comes along at finals and the college students have already taken them and they've had graduation ceremonies. Our high school students are either going into final exams or just completing final exams. And this is the word they hate more than anything that a teacher or professor will say going into that season of life. Cumulative. 
And what it means is you're not just responsible for the brand new material that you've just learned in the last few weeks. You're responsible for all of the material from the very beginning of this course, day one, all the way to the end of it. You're going to be tested on your knowledge of that. Not just an isolated chapter, but the whole thing. That's cumulative. And I can tell you this morning that we can take isolated Bible stories that we can take small narratives and they provide for us fantastic devotions, incredible Bible studies, great sermons, and great nuggets that we can hang on to that will help us know God better and trust Jesus more. But there's also something that connects it all together that makes the Bible cumulative. And we're willing to go that route and trust it from the beginning of the semester, how about the beginning of all time, until present day, we can glean a little more. See, I think it's in your notes this morning. You can learn. You can learn a lot from a single story or a single character, a a single verse. You can learn from single story elements. Absolutely. But also from the overarching threads that link those narratives Together, And that's what we're invited to do this morning as we look at Mark chapter 5, because there's a couple of different stories that isolated on their own, they can speak significant truth to us. But when you thread them together, there's something else that I think that the great God of this universe invites us to see. So got your Bibles open. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. You can also learn from the geographical nature of the Bible and why it gives you so many names of places, because this region of the Gerasenes is a Gentile region. This is a, a, a non-Jewish city. There are people here who don't observe the Jewish festivals and feasts and holidays and holy days, and they're not familiar with the Jewish customs and the law. This is a Gentile city in the Roman Empire. It's way more Roman than it is Jewish. And it says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs, hashtag gross, to meet him. Okay, this is literally living in a cemetery. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. It says, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. It's literally a Hulk smash. Like, it's literally the picture of, like, no chain is going to hold this guy down. The unclean evil spirits that are inside of him made him wildly unable to be subdued. And it says, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I just want to kind of start this moment this morning with with this idea. It's better, like in this story, but then also when you and I are honest about our problems. Like Like we're better off when we're honest about our problems. Problems are like opinions. Everybody's got 12 of them. Um, and they're not all right, by the way. I don't, I'm not, not sure if you know that, but all your opinions are not right. Now, you can have an overinflated sense of self regarding your opinions and think that you are always right. Or you can have a really deflated sense of self and a really low self-esteem and think that your opinions are always wrong and you never even share them. Like, you can be on both ends of that spectrum. And we as a people are rarely objective and rarely very neutral when it comes to our own thoughts and opinions. We either think that we're always right or just assume that we're always wrong. Our problems are kind of the same. You can have an, uh, an overextended sense of self-worth and think to yourself and even answer the question when you're asked, oh, that problem, no big deal, I got it. 
Like you can literally work through this whole life of yours mounting on massive problems and people coming to you expressing great concern over how serious they are and you're just like, oh no, no big deal, I got it. When in fact, sometimes they are a really big deal. Or you can go to the other end of the stream and have such an overinflated sense of your problems that you just assume that nobody else has ever had it as worse as you. Nobody knows the problems that I've seen, glory, hallelujah, all that. Like, you got 10 problems, I got 11. Like, whatever you've got going on, I promise you, I've been through worse. And we're rarely very objective or very neutral when it comes to opinions or problems. We either think, ah, no big deal, I got this, or... This is the worst that anybody's ever faced it in life, and no one understands how to help. The deal is, it's better when you and I are honest about the problems that we face in life. Ultimately, they can be like a cancer that, that, that either grows really, really rapidly or really, really slowly. But the point is that problems left unchecked, unnamed, undiagnosed, unaware of what the reality of them are in our lives is they don't ever go away or resolve by themselves. You have to address it. Our problems, even, even outlining what's going on with this fellow in the story, your problems can really easily isolate you. Our problems can isolate us. This guy was literally living alone in the tombs. They can also be much bigger than us. Problems can be big. They can be massive. His, <laughs> this guy's problems were way bigger than the chains way bigger than any earthly solution, way bigger than any earthly remedy. Nothing could subdue this guy's problems. They can also feel worse than death. And I know that point of so many of your lives, and maybe you know that point of mine, where the problem literally just seems worse than death to the point of agony in life where you've literally just begged the Lord to take you instead of having to continue facing this challenge day in and day out. And for the Jewish audience that Jesus took with him, for the disciples, it would have made them unclean to be anywhere near a dead body. And this guy lived among the death. Sometimes problems are so big, we just feel like we literally live among the death. And it's probably also a really good point today to shine a light on the fact that May is Ultra Awareness Month, right? It's literally awareness month for all the things. Very personally in my life is the, is the awareness month of cystic fibrosis, which is what my son has. There are other diseases that we, we shine light on and we give awareness to. Lupus is one of them. There's so many other. But May is also mental health awareness month. One out of every 20 adults will face a serious mental illness in a given calendar year. That's a stat and it's devastating. How about one out of every six? Are you kidding me? One out of every six teenagers will face a mental health condition or crisis within a calendar year, and barely over 60% of either teens or adults ever receive treatment for it. And I wouldn't begin to suppose this morning that, oh, if you read about demon possession in Scripture, what they're really talking about is mental health. No, I believe these are actual demonic evil forces at play in this guy's life. But if you've ever been a person who struggled with or knew and loved someone who struggled with mental illness, there is no better illustration for it than it just feels like there are demons that will not let you alone. And so we say that this is what this guy walked through. And that this is what he struggled with. You pick up in verse 6 and it says, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had like, said to him, Come out of this man. 
you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him this question, what is your name? And if you're like me, you immediately hear like Lord of the Rings and Gollum, like you hear that voice, it's like, my name is Legion, for we are, that's really bad, like, Legion, for we are many. Like it's that scary, evil, vampire kind of like demon voice, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Well, remember that this is a Roman audience. And that Mark writes after the death and the burial and the crucifixion of Jesus, he writes Peter's gospel for us so that we understand the life and the times and the ministry of what Peter experienced following Jesus. And it's a fast-paced, immediate kind of gospel. And he writes to a Roman audience, one that didn't understand the Jewish customs. But guess what the Roman audience did understand? They understood the word legion. Because legion literally meant anywhere from four to 6,000 soldiers. It was consisting of a whole bunch of cohorts and 30 to 60 men each literally potentially 5,200 evil spirits lived inside this guy. And Rome would have understood what that vocabulary and what the weight of his possession really was. And don't make this an illustration where, oh, basically we're just saying that Rome is that big and Jesus is bigger. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that our struggle is not against just flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is really a demonic issue, but in this moment, Jesus has power over it. If I'm somebody that's steeped in Roman culture and understood the pantheon of polytheistic religion that the Jews were against and that made all of those Roman Gentile people really, really unclean, and you find out that Jesus is bigger than that and able to be in control of that, you sit down and you pay attention. This legion of demons was submitting to the authority of Jesus. Those problems were falling down at his voice and at his word. And it says in verse 11 that a large herd of pigs was feeding on a, a nearby hillside. And, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, unclean animal. Clearly, this is not a Jewish region. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, that's practically a legion in and of itself, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. There's a Hebrew word, remez, and it means hint. And if you're a Jewish person or a Middle Eastern person and you're reading these texts, you're looking for hints of other texts and connections and connotations to other stories. Where else in the narrative of this work of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation do we find an incident of drowning? Well, the flood. And I don't know why we paint this on nurseries and why we put it in kids' ministry areas and why we're so bent on telling three-year-olds the story of Noah. It's probably because the cute little animal's like, oh, God loved Noah, and all the little animals made it onto the little boat, and there was a rainbow at the end. Everybody drowned. That was a terrible story. (laughs) Awful. There's another instance where drowning occurred shortly thereafter. The book of Exodus, right at the very beginning of it, Pharaoh ordered that all of the baby boys of Israel, that when they were born, they would be cast into the river and Drowned, and there was one sweet baby boy that was rescued by his very brave mother, Moses. And he grew up to provide for us another instance of drowning. So that if you're a Jewish audience in this moment and you understand what the Old Testament Torah scriptures say, you know that when Moses stretched out his hands over the Red Sea, that the waters parted and Israel was able to cross safely on dry ground. But when Moses got to the other side, along with all of God's children, that he stretched out his hands again. And the Bible says in Exodus that at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. You know what that meant? 
all of the Egyptian army and all of Pharaoh's men and all of his horses and all of his chariots who had chased those Israelites out of town, the Lord swept them into the sea. There is no problem, no enemy, no army too big that God cannot wash it away. It happened to the pigs. It happened to the army. It can happen to the problems that are in our lives. The narrative of scripture goes on so that in verse 14 it says that those tending to the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened when they came. I love this verse. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man, the crazy guy, the one that they couldn't chain up, the one that no one could subdue. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told all the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they also told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. If you are Roman, you also like your economy. And now because all of the pigs, the herds were drowned, your economy is kind of messed up in this moment. It says as Jesus was getting into the boat, he's leaving town. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, and Jesus did not let him but said, go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, uh, another Gentile region, how much Jesus had done for him. And all of the people were amazed. If you're a person like the underline words or, or circle words or write down things beside words in your Bible, you can underline that word amazed because it's the word thaumazo, and it literally means to wonder and to marvel. It's like, wow people just looked at Jesus and and were in awe and they marveled at what he was able to do and they were blown away by the man who's now dressed and seated rightly in his normal clothes like he's he's better now they're amazed if you go to the book of Luke that gives us the narrative of Jesus being born and the great things that happened, you know, you got Mary and Joseph, and there's a story of where Jesus is being presented into the temple, and these really wise old people, Anna and Simeon, they come to prophesy and to lay hands on Jesus and to speak good words about him. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, were amazed. They were in awe. They were in wonder over the words that we were spoken about Jesus. That's what this story is about. The people were blown away in, in wonder over who Jesus was and what he was capable of. There's a powerful juxtaposition of power in this passage of Scripture when you think about it, particularly regarding Rome. Because Rome, this, this Roman audience, they would have known their Roman history. They would have known their Roman heritage. If you go back to the timeline when Jesus was born, we read this story every single Christmas. You know that the Gospel of Luke tells us that in the year of Caesar Augustus, he ordered that a census was taken over the whole Roman Empire, and that's where Jesus was born. That's why they had to go to Bethlehem to be counted in the registry. With that Caesar Augustus, the very first Caesar of Rome, that's the one who was in charge when Jesus was born. But you fast forward to Luke chapter 3, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Oh, we got a new Caesar. Augustus is no more. Now we got Tiberius. They, they know who this is and what he meant. Tiberius was a military leader and didn't have much in favor of politics. So he often retreated and didn't stay in Rome where all of the politicians did. He went to the island of Capri, which I hear is really nice. Like, people should go there. It's like real expensive and like super fancy. He built a villa on top of that island and spent most of his years as Caesar there in what Roman historians outline as the most horrific display of sin and debauchery and the, just the most perverted, disgusting things ever. 
You should think of Tiberius, the guy who had the most authority and the most power in really the known world at the time. And he's wasting it on his sin and on his sensibilities. And you juxtapose that with Jesus, who is more powerful than the legions of Rome, walking with people, riding boats with people, healing people, teaching people, ushering in the kingdom of God for all people, leveraging all of his power and all of his authority for others. He's bigger than our problems. Not only is he bigger than our problems, he's there to engage them. He's not retreating on some island all by himself. He's with us. So the Bible continues the story. It says in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. Now we're going back to a Jewish region. Now we're going back to the, the Jewish customs and the Jewish crowds of people to the other side of the lake. A large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders, the synagogue leaders who was kind of in, in charge of the worship that happened in that area, his name was Jairus. He came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. It's in your notes this morning. Nothing, nothing inspires faith quite like desperation. I don't care how many churches you attend. I don't care how many sermons you listen to. I don't care how many songs you like and put on your playlist and memorize the lyrics for. I don't care how many Bible studies you read or how many devotionals are sitting by your bed. None of that will grow your faith like a position of desperation in your life where you are in dire need of Jesus. Nothing grows our faith quite like desperation. Where did we last see the synagogue leaders? The, the, the synagogue leaders who would have had to have been far more loyal to the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. Where did we last see? They were partnering with the Herodians, people they didn't even like to conspire against Jesus because they wanted to plot and arrest Jesus. The party line was, don't trust this man. The party line was, Jesus is not the one. The party line, Jesus is a rebel that's messing up our system and he must be stopped. The party line says it's better to conspire with a known enemy than to submit to his authority or to the growing popularity of Jesus. It's better to get him out of the way and maintain our status quo, but a dying daughter trumps the party line. You see, when you're desperate, you're willing to believe. Jason Hale is the campus pastor, a dear friend of mine, best buddy um, at the Nolansville campus, and he teaches there regularly like I'm here, and uh, we get together as communicators weekly to kind of talk about the text and talk about the message, and he said something several weeks ago that stuck with me. He knows uh, a local surgeon, a doctor who performs surgery on people who's a believer in Jesus Christ and a faithful follower who always asks his patients before they go under if he can pray for them. And he says to Jason, there are no atheists on operating tables. Because even people with zero faith in all are happy to be prayed for when they come face to face with their own mortality and they're in a desperate situation. There was no pharisaical party line when this man's daughter became ill because he was desperate. You know, our faith, it's enacted and it's enriched in the face of adversity. The church has thrived in the face of persecution and adversity for all time. And our faith is literally called and strengthened and infused by the trials and the struggles and the problems that we face. And so the man says, please, please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed because I want my daughter to live. 
So, so verse 24, Jesus went with them, and, and a large crowd of followers pressed around him, and a woman was there. Oh, new, a new story. So here, here's Jesus on the way navigating the crowds, trying to get to Jairus' daughter in time. And, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. The Bible says immediately, Mark loves the word immediately, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. It's one thing to exhaust all of our effort and all of our resources when you're waiting and it gets worse. Like, like read the passage of scripture and the description that's around her. She had suffered a great deal under the care of not one, but many doctors. And she had spent not just a lot, but all she had. And instead of getting any better at all, she grew worse. I know some people that feel that way. That the way of the world and the promises that it's made has led to nowhere. In fact, things that you really hoped would get better only got worse. And it cost a lot along the way. This world has nothing that it can guarantee and promise us to make things better. Y'all, I like quick results. Like, I want that pill that they talk about on Shark Tank that you take every night before you go to bed that makes you lose 40 pounds in 38 days. Like, I want that to be real. Like, and I want that offer that I get in the mail um, from the credit card that is going to somehow put me in debt, but I'll also get rid of all of my other debt, like overnight. Like, I want that. Like, I want, oh, this is, this debt is somehow going to eliminate, all, like, I want that to be true. Like, like, I want the easy solutions and the easy fixes, and the, and I'm literally willing to work for them and pay for them, and like, like, I want it to work out and to be in my favor, but I also know that sometimes our problems are just too big for us, and any solution that we throw at them, they break out of. It's one thing to spend all that you have and to give everything that you've got to worldly solutions, but it's another thing to ignore the Savior when he comes. And make no mistake, Jesus is here. And make no mistake, she knew why it mattered. This was her chance. This was her shot. This may have been the only moment that she ever had to see him and to touch him. And so praise God, she went for it. And I love this part of the story because she reached out specifically. If I can just touch his clothes, I know I'm gonna be healed. And that wasn't just some best guess on her part. This was literally a, a child of Israel, somebody who understood the thread of the Old Testament narrative. You see, back in the book of Numbers, God instructed that all of the priests would put tassels on the edges of their garments, that they would literally wear these prayer shawls. And the way that you would know that it was a priest coming in is that there would be tassels on the edges of those garments sewn with a cord. And that's how you, like, if I stood up here this morning and I had a shawl on, you would think that's weird because it's, because boys don't wear shawls and because, um, well, not really. And then also because it's hot, like it'd be just kind of strange, like just unseasonably warm to have a shawl on. And, but if it had tassels on the edge, you would realize that, oh, that's a priestly garb. That's, that's pretty intense. The, the instruction was, so the tassels, it's the Hebrew word tzitzit, on the corners, it's the Hebrew word kanaf of your garment, and that's how they were recognized. But Hebrew is a vocabulary poor language, which means every word has to do double duty, and kanaf is not just the word for corner, it's also the word for wings. And you think about it, if I was wearing a shawl and I went like this, it would kind of look like wings, right? Little tassels fraying in the wind, right? In the book of Malachi, it says that the sun would rise with healing in his kanaf, wings. And that didn't mean that the Savior was gonna come and have eagle feathers, 
That'd be weird. Like, we would certainly take note if Jesus was flying around the room. It just meant that there would be healing power even in the corners of his garment. He wouldn't be like the other rabbis. He wouldn't be like the other teachers. He wouldn't be like the other people that were said to be messianic in our history, that he would literally come and there would be healing power in the corners, in the edges, near the tassels of his garment. And when, so she reached out. She wasn't trying to grab him on the shoulder, tap him on the back of the neck and say, hey, Jesus, I kind of speak with you for just, this woman had been bleeding for 12 years, which made her ritualistically and ceremonially and socially unclean. Plus she was a woman and he was a dude that she did not know. Like reaching out and touching him would have been an offense. It would have made him unclean in the moment. Like they would have had a whole, like she could have been stoned for that. She wasn't reaching for him. She just wanted the edge because she knew. And she declared in that moment, I'm gonna grab the edge of his garment because I know he's the one. And if he's the one, there will be healing in his clothes. And she immediately, immediately she felt free from the burden of her illness. She didn't miss. She, she knew. She exercised faith. It says in verse 30 that at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? I just think that's so funny. Like, who touched my clothes? And the disciples answered, you see the people crowding against you and you can ask who touched me? Like, literally, we're in a crowded street. Everybody's bumping up against everybody. There is no social distancing on the streets that day. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And it says in verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. She told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, you know, I, I like the nuggets that we can learn from Scripture. And if we had time this morning, we would just stop right there and say how, he didn't say lady, he didn't say woman, he didn't even call her by name. He said daughter. Like, like when Jesus heals, and he restores when we recognize him as Savior and we put our faith and our trust in him, he calls us sons and daughters. It matters. And he says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Back to the little girl, because while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Jesus, you and your disciples can go about your business. You can get back to your journey. You can do whatever occupies your time because no point in going to Jairus' house anymore. It's just a whole bunch of sad people anyway because she died. And I just think in that moment that we should be really cautious about putting God on our timeline. I do that, though. I put him on my schedule. I put him on my time frame. Um, and I forget that sometimes Jesus wants to do more. He says, why bother the teacher anymore? Verse 36, overhearing. Jesus heard them. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him that, at that moment except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw the commotion, people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 8 says, um, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways. He does stuff that's different than what we expect and different than what we understand. And his timeline, like, is so different than ours. To quote the modern-day theologian Toby Mack, um, it may be midnight or midday. 
He's never early, but never late. Like Jesus is not, listen, he's not early, but he's also never late. And then Toby Mac says, I've lived enough life to say help is on the way. I want to be like that guy that's literally lived enough life and experienced enough healing and seen enough miracles to rest in the fact that, hey, I've lived enough. Help is on the way. And it's not going to come early, and it's not going to come when you want it, and it's not going to come on your timeline, in your time frame, and in the manner that you hope, but it will come, because that's who he is, and and that's how he operates. He says at the end of verse 40, he says, after he put them all out, he like, he was like, y'all get out of here. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went into where the child was, and he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. It's like me, and you can talk louder than that, Jesus, because it takes more than that to wake up my children in the morning. It's like, you've got to speak a little louder, but scripture says immediately. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. Parentheses, she was 12 years old. How long had that woman been bleeding? 12 years. How long, how old that, 12 years old. At this, the Bible says they, the people in the room, the mother, the father, those three disciples were completely uh, astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anybody know about this. And he told them to give the girl something to eat. That's why we do snacks in kids' ministry. Um, <laughs> give that baby some goldfish or maybe one of those little cookies that you put on your finger and it's shaped like a flower around here. Like, I don't know what they brought her in the moment. I used to put them on my finger and just eat kind of around them. Like, give that baby a snack. She just had a nap. She woke up. She's hungry. And scripture says they were astonished. It doesn't say amazed. That's thaumazo. That would have been like they just stood there in awe. But it says astonished. That's the word existima. And it literally means to displace somebody. Like to put them out of their mind. The people were so blown away, it moved them. They were wild in the moment. They were crazy about the fact that Jesus had just done, and they had witnessed what he was capable of, literally out of their minds. If you fast forward in Luke chapter 2, after the story where Jesus was born and presented in the temple, and people came and said good things about the tiny little baby Jesus, and Mary and Joseph were just so amazed, thaumazo, like they were just in wonder over the great words that were spoken about their baby. Fast forward to 12 years later, y'all, 12, really? That girl was 12 years old. That woman bled for 12 years. Here's Jesus, Luke chapter 2, 12 years old. And, and the family makes a journey to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And when they're making their journey back home, it's several days, and they're in this giant caravan of family and friends. And, and Mary and Joseph, they realize that Jesus is not with them. And of course, they have a panic attack because that's what you do at the Kroger when you realize you can't find your kid on the aisle. And you're like, where'd my kid go? And so they have to go back to Jerusalem. Where do they find him? He's in the temple. Of course, I'm, I'd be in my father's house. And he's literally speaking and asking questions and answering questions of the leading scribes and teachers and experts on mosaic law and scripture says that they were astonished existima he put them out of their places they were moved in a different direction because jesus was that wise and that's what i want these stories to do i want to be amazed by what jesus can do Ooh, ah, jesus but i also want to be put out of my place and put in a new spot because of what he's capable of there is a cumulative thread that runs through these stories what it may seem right now is not what it will always be what it seems like right now is not what it's always going to be 
Because verse 15, when they saw the man who had been possessed, the crazy man who, who literally shouted out loud all day and all night and cut himself with rocks and lived in the tombs and broke his own chains, he was sitting there nice clothes. What it seems right now is not what it's always going to be. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Verse 29, she touched the clothes of Jesus and immediately her bleeding left her. It stopped and she was freed. The woman who had suffered, the woman who had been ceremonially and socially and ritualistically unclean for over a decade seemed like it would never get any better. All of a sudden it's different. And here's a girl that's dead. While the commotion, she died. That's why we're wailing. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And then that baby got up and asked for a snack. What it seems like right now in all three of these stories is not the way that it stayed. Jesus changed everything. Ooh, ah, Jesus, and put me out of my place and set me somewhere different. Jesus, he changes everything. You know, we sing the hymn. It's, it's pretty familiar. It's Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that, that saved a wretch like me. Okay, I was a wretch. Well, now I'm saved. What it is right now, what it seems like, is not what it always will be. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Like, what it seems like it is not what it will always be. I was blind, but now I see. Like, what it literally is right now does not have to stay that way. It can be different. It can be Better, I was literally possessed by a legion of demons. And now I'm in my right mind. Like what it seems like it always will be does not have to be what it always is. Bleeding for over a decade. But now I'm free. Dead in my bed, but now I'm hungry. Like what it is right now. The problem that you face right now, the legion of problems that you're under right now, the challenges that you can't see past right now, how it is, how it seems, is not how it always will be. There's a thread. There's something in each one of these stories that we can lean on and that we can cling to and that we can trust. But there's something in the thread that runs between them that we can't live without. We need the cumulative story. And we need to build on last week's story, and we need to incorporate next week's story if we're truly going to understand the goodness of what God has given us in Jesus. He has not only the power and the authority to help, but the willingness to be with you and to help. And some of you feel like it's too late. Baby's dead. It's over. It's never going to go away. It's never going to be resolved. It's too, It's not too late. It's not too late to reach out. It's not too late to express faith. It's not too late to trust. But also, don't miss your shot. Don't miss the chance. Because he's really here. And you can trust him. And you can have him. He can win the battle over every single struggle, fear, doubt, oppression, problem that you face in life the way it is now. It doesn't have to be like that tomorrow. What it may seem is not what it will be. Jesus shakes things up. He moves us in a new direction. He changes the trajectory of our lives. There's still time. 
but don't miss the shot to trust in Jesus. Because there's a final. And it's cumulative. And the threat is, the right answer is, he can be trusted. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place and to, to see your word for what it is and for what it means and hopefully to acknowledge why it matters. Friends of mine in this room, sons and daughters, um, brothers and sisters, um, 99 plus problems, every one of them. And some of it just seems so big. And in some ways, they're so isolated. And in some ways, they don't see any other real solution. It's just always going to be this way. I have to live with it. It's, it's always going to be like this. But God, your word says that you're bigger and that you're more powerful and also that you're willing it says that you can be trusted. And so, Father, today we want to acknowledge that. And I pray that in this place there would be people all over this room acknowledging, mm, naming their problems, naming their struggles, and saying, okay, Jesus, show me that you're bigger than that. And move me to a different place and a different perspective in spite of that. It's in your name that we pray today. Amen. You've been listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. See you next time and God bless.